and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator, and joining me today are Giles Parkinson, managing director and portfolio manager at Close Brothers Asset Management, and as ever, Dave Baxter, funds editor at Investors Chronicle. Thank you both for joining me. Hi there. Good morning. Really pleased to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And Giles, um, you've cut your money in, in some of the portfolios uh, that you run. You've cut your money market holdings markedly this year, I think from about uh, 10% in at least some of the portfolios to around 2%. Where have you been deploying this cash? Yeah, certainly. So even rewind a year ago, that figure was even higher. We were really getting up towards the 20% mark. Why is it we had so much in money market funds? It was really in response to the rising yields that we saw in fixed income across the whole market. We were looking to effectively dodge the bullet that was speeding towards uh, fixed income as an asset class last year by keeping our duration short. Duration's a term I'm going to come back to, I'm sure, in the course of this discussion. Keep our duration short. We've now seen that starting to change. So towards the back end of last year, we started to move out of money market funds into longer term bonds as we began to gain conviction um, as a team that potentially interest rate rises around the world had stopped and central banks were maybe towards the end of their hiking regime rather than being towards the beginning which was very much the case in 2022. Thank you um, and Dave I know that you'll have uh, you'll have picked up on that uh, generally at the market level people reducing their their holdings in, yeah. in cash and um, what what have you been hearing from from readers or what are your thoughts on on where, where the market is is, is going? I mean, I suppose there's, yeah, there's so much interest in fixed income and those kind of what people might view as easy yields and good yields on, you know, what tended to be viewed as safe assets. Um, I suppose, Giles, I, I wondered, you, does that mean, do you feel you need to be sort of braced for more potential volatility if you're now kind of um, tucking into duration? You know, in the last year, we've had plenty of instances where people have said, Perhaps validly have said that kind of government bonds look very interesting, but we've still had some pretty big spikes in volatility. And I suppose the kind of longer duration end of that has sometimes been pretty vulnerable to the, the, the greatest brunt of that. Yeah, so certainly the case last year and the movements that we've had coming into this year in terms of how we changed our portfolios, lengthening duration was really moving from a position of being ultra short duration to a more neutral level. So yes, I take the point as to the uh, outlook for fixed income does still have some potential risks associated with it. Inflation seems to be coming down now. Does it potentially reaccelerate? Just in the last month or so, we have actually seen a pickup in commodity prices, for example. So our moves in fixed income have been very much a case of effectively locking in something that worked last year moving from ultra short duration to more neutral position. But look, to come back to your comment of earlier, in our view, an asset is only really safe if it's priced accordingly. Mm. And after a decade of ZERP, zero interest rate policy last year, the yields on fixed income went down and down and down until I think it was in 2020, a third of bonds around the world had negative 
yields, they weren't really priced for the risks that are ahead. But actually today, I mean, just, just taking sovereign bond yields, whether it's in the UK or the US, for example, now a yield of 4%, a starting yield of 4%, does, as we see it, provide some cushion for investors from this point, because after all, it's fixed income. It's called fixed income for a reason um, that those coupons are real. So yes, there might be some still fluctuation in the capital values, but from this starting point, um, a beginning yield of four uh, percent provides some cushion to that potential volatility. And are you are you viewing it more as a kind of? I mean, the answer may well be both, but are you seeing it more as a kind of um, safe haven play for if we do, I suppose, enter kind of recessionary conditions, that kind of thing, or is it more simply a that it looks kind of cheap on some metrics, and b I suppose you can sort of cling on to that yield even if things do get shaky again. Yeah. So. Traditionally, long-term bonds, long-duration sovereign bonds would have been that safe haven trade, right? Going Mm. into a recession, going into a softer economic patch, yields tend to fall. That's good for the capital values of bonds. And it's really best for those longest duration bonds, the ones who see their price appreciate most. But of course, timing is everything. Um, So today we're more neutral in terms of our overall fixed income allocation percentage wise, but also in terms of the duration that we've got built in within that. But I think if we had greater conviction around the timing of a potential recession, then yes, you might see us move longer duration in terms of those sovereign bonds. But then we um, should also talk about corporate credit too. You know, you can get a yield pickup, which now is really interesting in our view. So Triple B, that's the lowest level of investment grade, but it's still investment grade bonds in sterling terms, have a yield of around 7% today. That's really good. And it's the best it's been ever since the financial crisis. So I think investors should really think about their allocation to fixed income. And frankly, the headline yields, which are available today, really sort of almost break the back, if I can put it in those terms, in terms of achieving a good risk-adjusted total return from, from this point. Wasn't the case last year, wasn't the case the year before, but looking forward, uh, we see the outlook as much improved for fixed income now. Giles, our own databases here at Asset Allocator show that there has been a move among DFMs generally back into that fixed income universe, probably for many of the reasons that you've just outlined. Um, among the DFMs we cover, that increased exposure has come to a very large extent at the expense of infrastructure and property uh, funds exposure. How do you view those latter two asset classes right now? Yeah, so we in our portfolios didn't have huge allocations to infrastructure and property. Why is that? Well, let's go back to what I was saying earlier about this zero interest rate regime. You know, traditionally, your two building blocks of a multi-asset fund would have been equities and fixed income. But as the yields on fixed income came down and down and down, I feel the whole industry was looking elsewhere in terms of literally alternatives to try and get a return out of that 40 component um, out of their portfolio because yields had fallen by such a long way. For us, actually, last year, we thought that the better route was actually to, rather than increase a lot of property and infrastructure, was actually to have that large cash weighting that I mentioned before. Why is it we're maybe a little more cautious on property and infrastructure? Well, really, two reasons. One is because, actually, they do have quite a lot of correlation to fixed income. It's just the nature of how those assets are priced, either explicitly in terms of the NAVs or also just, frankly, the duration of those cash flows means there's still quite a lot of interest rate sensitivity, even if you didn't have, again, raw percentage terms, just a fixed income allocation. 
The second reason why maybe we didn't have quite the allocations to property infrastructure is, okay, some of them might have fixed income correlation, but actually a lot of them have a lot of equity correlation too. So again, we felt that maybe some in the industry were actually taking a lot of equity type risk in a time where there's slowing growth, high inflation, and maybe sort of a potential recession waiting in the wings, actually taking quite a lot of equity type risk, but it sat within their alternative buckets. So for us, we kept it simple, equities, not much in fixed income, substituting cash rather than going down the route that a lot of others in the industry did, which was moving into some of those alternatives that you've just mentioned there. And do you think there are any alternatives that still kind of stand out? I suppose you mentioned correlations. There have been some quite big questions over the last year about kind of what they're really offering and the kind of vulnerabilities that have have come up. Yes, so alternatives is a very broad church. There's lots of pieces within it. One we haven't mentioned uh, so far is commodities. Now, commodities can serve a really interesting function within a multi-asset portfolio because if commodities prices are rising, that tends to mean inflation in the overall economy is going to rise, which all else equals going to be negative for fixed income. So it could be possible to somewhat offset some of the risks that you're taking in your fixed income book and the duration uh, stance that maybe you've taken there. If you've also got a small allocation to commodities that might produce some offsetting gains if it turns out that you've been too early in terms of getting longer duration. So the correlations within a multi-asset fund are um, are very interesting. And it's one thing that we think about a lot in terms of building a good sort of portfolio that has a decent risk-adjusted return and also some sort of protection if your central economic case doesn't work out. Thank you. And Giles, one of those, uh, one of the themes I think uh, that many allocators are, are pondering, and which, which I think uh, you're, you're going to uh, you're going to touch on later on in this episode, is is around what what is a what is a, a defensive asset class, what is an uncorrelated asset class, and Japanese equities have performed quite strongly this year to date. I think partly because the monetary policy landscape in Japan has been quite different to that in other dev- developed markets, so its, its equity market should be expected to move in a, in a different direction. But our own database shows that DFMs haven't really changed their Japanese equity exposure in line with that market expansion this year. But how do you view uh, that, that asset class? So certainly Japanese equities have been very strong on a year-to-date basis. Um, but I think um, investors should remember that what matters is actually the the return once we translate any gains in back into sterling, which is our, our home currency. And I think one of the reasons actually the Japanese market has been very strong is it's been priced in yen. And the yen is uh, depreciated on a year-to-date basis. So actually, if you think about that market in constant currency terms, it's actually been an underperformer on a year-to-date basis. Um, So in terms of what we've been doing within the portfolio, we are global investors. We're also directly invested. So rather than looking top-down and thinking, oh, the UK market, the US or Japan in this particular instance is cheap and do we increase allocations there, we're very much building a portfolio on the bottom-up basis based on the direct stocks and bonds of individual companies like a Nestle, for example, that we've decided to own. So just in Japan, we do have two holdings. Um, We've got Tokyo Electron, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about um, semiconductors and uh, AI and all that um, exciting things there. We've also got a holding in um, 
Olympus, which is a medical device company. But when we've bought these Japanese companies, we've really bought them because we've seen them as global leaders within a particular niche, within a particular market, um, rather than the fact that they happen to be listed out in Tokyo. Thank you. Um, and yes, I, look, no, no investment podcast in this day and age would be would be complete without um, without mentioning AI um, and all that goes with it. There's been a hard rally in tech stocks this year, partly as a result of that. But has this caused you to change anything at the portfolio level? So the short answer is no, but that's not because, in a sense, we're sceptical about this AI um, trend which has emerged in markets. Look, there's lots of periodic themes that um, crop up in markets. I slightly feel that sometimes these are participants wanting to backwards engineer a narrative onto some price movements that um, has um, um, occurred. And there's lots of these different um, themes and trends. 3D printing, cryptocurrencies, even Beanie Babies, you know, sort of thinking back a couple of decades. AI for us is in a different bucket. AI is real. And it's something that within the portfolio, we were uh, positioned um, in anticipation of this coming. We weren't quite sure too much on the timing. ChatGPT, if, if um, any um, listeners have, um, have, have been following that, that story, really seems to have lit an enthusiasm. But how we decided to capture this uh, within our portfolio is not so much on the front end in terms of the products and so on, but more taking a bit more of a technology agnostic view, if I can say, and going after those companies which are um, the picks and shovel suppliers. So I mentioned Tokyo Electron, which is involved in um, semiconductors. We also have a broader basket of semiconductor involved companies and businesses within the portfolio. TSMC, which is the leading Taiwanese chip business, um, applied materials. But again, stepping back even further, the products and services that companies might come out with are really particularly interesting. So we've got, for example, a holding in Google or even let's scoot back over to Europe, um, seemingly maybe sort of pr predictable or sort of unexciting, but we like unexciting businesses. They're one of our most favorite ones. You know, companies like Relix or Voltus Kluver that might be able to come up with new products, new AI-enhanced products of their existing suite, which are priced at a higher level, accelerating the revenues of these sorts of companies. So again, this is really why we feel that the benefits of our direct approach. One of them is we feel we're able to target areas of undervaluation in the market more precisely than maybe in a sense, a sort of a top-down view in terms of, oh, um, the S&P has got a lot of tech stocks in it. Let's go and buy the S&P or the NASDAQ or even some sort of broader ETF targeting a particular industry. We feel that we can do the fundamental work on individual companies. Thank you. And uh, David, have you been, uh, have Investors Chronicle Reader has been deluging you with questions about how to invest in AI. <laughs> yes, absolutely. They're very keen. Um, but I, I, I suppose it's kind of some, some work some colleagues might have done on this is, uh, you know, identifies the fact that there are many uh, industries and areas that can benefit from it beyond the kind of pure place. So perhaps you don't have to buy NVIDIA. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and... Charles, um, I, th I, th I think from a glance at your portfolios that you've been uh, increasing exposure to what, to what many would call defensive uh, companies and, and instruments. But what does that term mean to you and how have you been, been doing that? Certainly. So I'd encourage investors to think about defensiveness in two terms. One is how it's priced. Um, you know, this is really converting a cheap 
company into a cheap stock or a cheap bond into an underpriced security. Um, so just is something priced for the opportunities ahead? So positively, that can be maybe a coming theme, which is going to help the revenues like AI is not reflected in the current share price. Um, or maybe it's just for those unanticipated risks. We were talking about fixed income earlier. What happens if um, inflation picks up? You're in a better starting point when you're when your sovereign bonds have a going yield of four as opposed to beginning at zero. The other aspect towards defensiveness is within effectively the resiliency of that um, particular uh, security. So is the corporate bond investment grade or is it a, a junk bond, for example? That's a measure of you know its robustness. Um, or within the corporate setting, you know, to what extent can a company continue to grow its earnings through a recession? So that would be an outright defensive if it can continue its earnings trajectory unimpeded. Or maybe it's a resilient grower. So yes, it will still grow, but maybe a little less quickly. I contrast that with more cyclical businesses. You know, These are the sorts of companies whose revenues and profits are almost certain to decline if there is an economic downturn. But again, that said, we do have some cyclical holdings within the portfolio um, at, at the moment, even though we may have a slightly cautious view in terms of where the um, economy is going from here, because we think in those, again, back on you know the valuation aspect of defensiveness, we think that yes, it's a cyclical business, but the potential downturn risks are more than reflected in its current share price. Thank you for that. And uh, David, um, I guess that's that's been a, a big question for allocators is what is defensive? It was supposed to be government bonds and then <laughs> I think 2021 reveal, 2022 indeed revealed that it's not government bonds or not always government bonds. Yes, just a few slivers of defensiveness, I suppose, wasn't it? Kind of your energy and your, I suppose, interestingly for me is the, the dividend paying companies. And I suppose Giles is allude, could be alluding to that there as well. Um, see whether those kind of stocks do stay in vogue um, and that kind of slow and steady quality approach continues to um, to kind of serve people well. Sure, I think, Charles, you've got have you got a new portfolio that you've just launched, which is uh, which is sort of focused on on those uh, longer longer duration equity type assets. Oh, yes, thanks uh, very much for raising it. So, yes, we're uh, um, delighted that um, a month ago, back end of June, we launched the um, Close Select Global Equity Fund. So, this sits at the highest of our risk profiles in that growth plus risk profile. I also manage the portfolio growth, portfolio balance and portfolio conservative funds. So, in a sense, it's a pure equity fund rather than being more 80-20, 60-40, 40-60 as, as those other ones are. But it's in common with, with those others. It has the same direct holdings, the same sort of 30 the 50 stocks just um, just reflected in terms of different weightings because that's a fully invested equity portfolio but it's, but it's the same ethos that ultimately we're trying to buy companies that are going to grow in value and repay their debts at reasonable prices which is very much a cash flow orientation so this predictability element to what we seek to own uh, is uh, key for us you and then just as a final uh, point on the fixed income side have you been uh, going going longer duration uh, which, which obviously offers uh, potentially greater protection against inflation risk although greater exposure to uh, sorry greater protection from recession risk and greater exposure to inflation risk is that how you've been managing your fixed income Yes, very much so. Um, so we do believe that central banks are close to the end and possibly one or two central banks around the world are even at the end of their uh, hiking cycles. Inflation is coming down. There's a bit of a side debate of is it going to come down to the magic 2% level on a sustainable basis or is it potentially going to be a bit more sticky um, um, at a higher level for that and how does, do central banks uh, respond? 
netting that off against the valuation side. Um, again, you know, at just the index level, you know, you can get a yield of 7% on uh, corporate bonds. We think we can um, um, security select and um, achieve something slightly better than that, of course. And then just um, plain old vanilla sovereign bonds, a yield of four. If there is tougher economic times ahead, potential recession, then interest rates uh, should not only peak, but actually start to fall. And that should really benefit um, those longer duration bonds that we have in the portfolio. So, but uh, yes, but the timing here is key. We haven't gone outright long duration yet, and we haven't gone outright heavily underweight equities yet. So let's see. Okay, Giles, well, thank you for that. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. Thank you to Giles Parkinson, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Close Brothers Asset Management, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle, who, useful as ever, has just reminded me to remind you that this is the last Asset Allocator podcast edition until September. But please do remember to tune back in then. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.